0: Book Two Part One of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Christopher, JX Christopher at Yahoo.com. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume One. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Bodrib. Book Two. A.D. 16-19, to 19, Part One. In the consulship of Sustinus Statilus Tarsus, and Lucius Libo, there was a commotion in the kingdoms and Roman provinces of the east. It had its origin among the Parthians, who disdained as a foreigner a king whom they had sought and received from Rome, though he was of the family of the Arsacids. This was Venones, who had been given as a hostage to Augustus by Phraates for although he had driven before him armies and generals from rome phraetes had shown to augustus every token of reverence and had sent him some of his children to cement the friendship not so much from dread of us as from distrust of the loyalty of his countrymen after the death of phraetes and the succeeding kings in the bloodshed of civil wars there came to rome envoys from the chief men of parthia in quest of venones his eldest son caesar thought this a great honor to himself and loaded venones with wealth the barbarians too welcomed him with rejoicing as is usual with new rulers soon they felt shame at parthians having become degenerate at their having sought a king from another world one too infected with the training of the enemy at the throne of the arsacids now being possessed and given away among the provinces of rome where they asked was the glory of the men who slew crassus who drove out antonius if caesar's drudge after an endurance of so many years slavery were to rule over the parthians Venonez himself too further provoked their disdain by his contrast with their ancestral manners by his rare indulgence in the chase by his feeble interest in horses and by the litter in which he was carried whenever he made a progress through their cities and by his contemptuous dislike of their national festivities they also ridiculed his greek attendance and his keeping under seal the commonest household articles but he was easy of approach his courtesy was open to all and he had thus virtues with which the parthians were unfamiliar and vices new to them and as his ways were quite alien from theirs they hated alike what was bad and what was good in him accordingly they summoned artabanus an Arsacid by blood who had grown to manhood among the dahe and who though routed in the first encounter rallied his forces and possessed himself of the kingdom the conquered venones found a refuge in armenia then a free country and exposed to the power of Parthia and Rome, without being trusted by either, in consequence of the crime of Antonius, who, under the guise of friendship, had inveigled Artavastes, king of the Armenians, then loaded him with chains, and finally murdered him. His son, Artaxius, our bitter foe because of his father's memory, found defense for himself and his kingdom in the might of the Arsacids. When he was slain by the treachery of kinsmen, Caesar gave Tigranes to the Armenians, and he was put in possession of the kingdom under the escort of Tiberius Nero. But neither Tigranes nor his children reigned long, though in foreign fashion they were united in marriage and in royal power. Next, at the bidding of Augustus, Artavastes was set on the throne, nor was he deposed without disaster to ourselves. Caius Caesar was then appointed to restore order in Armenia. He put over the Armenians Areobizarnes, a Mede by birth, whom they willingly accepted because of a singularly handsome person and noble spirit on the death of ario bazarnes through a fatal accident they would not endure his son having tried the government of a woman named Erato, and having soon afterwards driven her far from them bewildered and disorganized rather indeed without a ruler than enjoying freedom they received for their king the fugitive venones when however artabanus began to threaten and but feeble support could be given by the armenians or war with parthia would have to be undertaken if Venones was to be upheld by our arms, the governor of Syria, Creticus Salanus, sent for him and kept him under surveillance, letting him retain his royal pomp and title. How Venones mediated an escape from this mockery, I will relate in the proper place. Meanwhile, the commotion in the east was rather pleasing to Tiberius, as it was a pretext for withdrawing Germanicus from the legions which knew him well, and placing him over new provinces where he would be exposed to both treachery and to disasters. Germanicus, however, in proportion to the strength of the soldier's attachment and to his uncle's dislike, was eager to hasten his victory, and he pondered on plans of battle, and on the reverses or successes which during more than three years of war had fallen to his lot. The Germans, he knew, were beaten in the field and on fair ground. They were helped by woods, swamps, short summers, and early winters. His own troops were affected not so much by wounds as by long marches and damage to their arms. Gaul had been exhausted by supplying horses, a long baggage train presented facilities for ambuscades, and was embarrassing to its defenders, but by embarking on the sea, invasion would be easy for them, and a surprise to the enemy, while a campaign too would be more quickly begun. The legions and supplies would be brought up simultaneously, and the cavalry with their horses would arrive, in good condition, by the river mouths and channels, at the heart of Germany. To this accordingly he gave his mind and sent publius vitalis and caius antius to collect the taxes of gaul silius antius and caecina had the charge of building a fleet it seemed that a thousand vessels were required and they were speedily constructed some of a small draught with a narrow stem and stern and a broad centre that they might bear the waves more easily some flat-bottomed that they might ground without being injured several furnished with a rudder at each end so that by a sudden shifting of the oars they might be run into shore either way Many were covered in with decks on which engines for missiles might be conveyed, and were also fit for the carrying of horses or supplies, and being equipped with sails as well as rapidly moved by oars. They assumed, through the enthusiasm of our soldiers, an imposing and formidable aspect. The island of the Batavi was the appointed rendezvous, because of its easy landing places, and its convenience for receiving the army and carrying the war across the river. For the Rhine, after flowing continuously in a single channel, or encircling merely insignificant islands, divides itself, so to say, where the Batavian territory begins, into two rivers, retaining its name and the rapidity of its course in the stream which washes Germany, till it mingles with the ocean. On the Gallic bank, its flow is broader and gentler. It is called by an altered name, the Bahal, by the inhabitants of its shore. Soon that name, too, is changed for the Mosa River, through whose vast mouth it empties itself into the same ocean. Caesar, however, while the vessels were coming up, ordered Silius, his lieutenant-general, to make an inroad on the Chatai with a flying column. He himself, on hearing that a fort on the river Lupia was being besieged, led six legions to the spot. Silius, owing to sudden rains, did nothing but carry off a small booty, and the wife and daughter of Arpus, the chief of the Chattai. And Caesar had no opportunity of fighting given him by the besiegers, who dispersed on the rumor of his advance. They had, however destroyed the barrow lately raised in memory of Varius's legions, and the old altar of Drusus. The prince restored the altar, and himself with his legions celebrated funeral games in his father's honor. To raise a new barrow was not thought necessary. All the country between the Fort Aliso and the Rhine was thoroughly secured by new barriers and earthworks. By this time the fleet had arrived, and Caesar, having sent on his supplies and assigned vessels for the legions and the allied troops, Entered Drusius's Fosse, as it was called. He prayed Drusius's father to lend him, now that he was venturing on the same enterprise, the willing and favorable aid of the example, and willing and favorable aid of the example and memory of his consuls and achievements. And he arrived after a prosperous voyage through the lakes and the ocean as far as the river Amesia. His fleet remained there on the left bank of the stream, and it was a blunder that he did not have it brought up the river. He disembarked the troops which were to be marched to the country on the right, and thus several days were wasted in the construction of bridges. The cavalry and the legions fearlessly crossed the first estuaries in which the tide had not yet risen. The rear of the auxiliaries, and the Batavi among the number, plunging recklessly into the water and displaying their skill in swimming, fell into disorder, and some were drowned. While Caesar was measuring out his camp, he was told of a revolt of the angrivari in his rear. He at once dispatched Tertinius with some cavalry and a light armed force who punished their perfidy with fire and sword. The waters of the Vesurgis flowed between the Romans and the Cherusae. On its bank stood Arminius with the other chiefs. He asked whether Caesar had arrived, and on the reply that he was present, he begged leave to have an interview with his brother. That brother, surnamed Flavius, was with our army, a man famous for his loyalty, and for having lost an eye by a wound, a few years ago, when Tiberius was in command. The permission was then given, and he stepped forth and was saluted by Arminius, who had removed his guards to a distance and required that the bowmen ranged on our bank should retire. When they had gone away, Arminius asked his brother whence came the scar which disfigured his face, and, on being told the particular place in battle, he inquired what reward he had received. Flavius spoke of increased pay, of a neck-chain, a crown, and other military gifts, while Arminius jeered at such paltry recompense for slavery then began a controversy the one spoke of the greatness of rome the resources of caesar the dreadful punishment in store for the vanquished the ready mercy for him who surrenders and the fact that neither his wife nor his son were treated as enemies the other of the claims of fatherland of ancestral freedom of the gods of the homes of germany of the mother who shared his prayers that flavius might not choose to be the deserter and betrayer rather than the ruler of his kinfolk and relatives and indeed of his own people. By degrees they fell into bitter words, and even the river between them would not have hindered them from joining combat, had not Stertinius hurried up and put his hand on Flavius, who in the full tide of his fury was demanding his weapons and his charger. Arminius was seen facing him, full of menaces and challenging him to conflict. Much of what he said was in Roman speech, for he had served in our camp as leader of his fellow countrymen. Next day, the German army took up its position on the other side of the Visergius. Caesar, thinking that without bridges and troops to guard them, it would not be good generalship to expose the legions to danger, sent the cavalry across the river by the fords. It was commanded by Stertinius and Aemilius, one of the 1st rank centurions, who had attacked at widely different points so as to distract the enemy. Cheryvalda, the Batavian chief, dashed into the charge where the stream is most rapid. The Cherusi, by a pretended flight, drew him into a plain surrounded by forest passes, then bursting on him in a sudden attack from all points, they thrust aside all who resisted, pressed fiercely on their retreat, driving them before them, when they rallied in a compact array, some by close fighting, others by missiles from a distance. Cheriovalda, after long sustaining the enemy's fury, cheered on his men to break by a dense formation the onset of their bands, while he himself plunged into the thickest of the battle fell amid a shower of darts with his horse pierced under him, and round him many noble chiefs. The rest were rescued from the peril by their own strength, or by the cavalry which came up with Sturtinius and Aemilius. Caesar, on crossing the Vasurgis, learnt by the information of a deserter that Arminius had chosen a battlefield, that other tribes too had assembled in a force sacred to Hercules, and would venture on a night attack on his camp. He put faith in this intelligence, and besides, several watch-fires were seen, Scouts also, who had crept close up to the enemy, reported that they had heard the neighing of horses and the hum of a huge and tumultuous host. And so, as the decisive crisis drew near, that he ought thoroughly to sound the temper of his soldiers. He considered with himself how this was to be accomplished with a genuine result. Tribunes and centurions, he knew, often reported what was welcome than what was true. Freedmen had slavish spirits, friends a love of flattery. If an assembly were called... There, too, the lead of a few was followed by the shout of the many. He must probe their innermost thoughts, when they were uttering their hopes and fears at the military mess, among themselves and unwatched. At nightfall, leaving his tent of augury by a secret exit unknown to the sentries, with one companion, his shoulders covered with a wild beast skin, he visited the camp streets, stood by the tents, and enjoyed the men's talk about himself. As one extolled his noble rank, another his handsome person, nearly all of them his endurance, his gracious manner, and the evenness of his temper, whether he was jesting or was serious, while they acknowledged that they ought to repay him with their gratitude in battle, and at the same time sacrifice to a glorious vengeance the perfidious violators of peace. Meanwhile, one of the enemy, acquainted with the Roman tongue, spurred his horse up to the entrenchments, and in a loud voice promised in the name of Arminius to all deserters, "'Wives and lands, with daily pay of a hundred sesteres, as long as the war lasted. "'The insult fired the wrath of the legions. "'Let daylight come,' they said. "'Let battle be given. "'The soldiers will possess themselves of the lands of the Germans, "'and will carry off their wives. "'We hail the omen. "'We mean the women and the riches of the enemy to be our spoil. "'About midday there was a skirmishing attack upon our camp, "'without any discharge of missiles.' when they saw the cohorts in close array before the lines and no sign of carelessness the same night brought with it a cheering dream to Germanicus he saw himself engaged in sacrifice and his robe being sprinkled with the sacred blood another more beautiful was given him by the hands of his grandmother Augusta encouraged by the omen and finding the auspices favourable he called an assembly and explained the precautions which wisdom suggested as suitable for the impending battle it is not he said Plains only which are good for the fighting of Roman soldiers, but woods and forest passes if science be used. For the huge shields and unwieldy lances of the barbarians cannot, amid trunks of trees and brushwood that springs from the ground, be so well managed as are javelins and swords, and close-fitting armor. Shower your blows thickly, strike at the face with your sword's points. The German has neither cuirass nor helmet, even his shield does not strengthen with leather or steel, but is of osiers woven together, or of thin and painted board. If their first line is armed with spears, the rest have only weapons hardened by fire or very short. Again, though their frames are terrible to the eye, and formidable in a brief onset, they have no capacity of enduring wounds. Without any shame at the disgrace, without any regard to their leaders, they quit the field and flee. They quail under disaster, just as in success they forget alike divine and human laws. If in your weariness of land and sea you desire an end of service, this battle prepares the way to it. The Elbe is now nearer than the Rhine, and there is no war beyond, provided only you enable me, keeping close as I do to my father's and uncle's footsteps, to stand a conqueror on the same spot. The general's speech was followed by enthusiasm in the soldiers, and the signal for battle was given." Nor were Arminius and the other German chiefs slow to call their respective clansmen to witness that these Romans were the most cowardly fugitives out of Varius's army. Men who, rather than endure war, had taken to mutiny. Half of them have their backs covered with wounds. Half are once again exposing limbs battered by waves and storms to a foe full of fury, and to hostile deities, with no hope of advantage. They have, in fact, had recourse to a fleet and to a trackless ocean, that their coming might be unopposed their flight unpursued. But when once they have joined conflict with us, the help of winds or oars will be unavailing to the vanquished. Remember only their greed, their cruelty, their pride. Is anything left for us but to retain our freedom, or to die before we are enslaved? When they were thus roused and were demanding battle, their chiefs led them down to a plain named Idistavissus. It winds between the Visurgis and a hill range its breadth varying as the river banks recede or the spurs of the hills project on it in their rear rose a forest with the branches rising to a great height while there were clear spaces between the trunks the barbarian army occupied the plain in the outskirts of the wood the cherusi were posted by themselves on the high ground so as to rush down on the romans during the battle our army advanced in the following order the auxiliary gauls and germans were in the van then the foot archers after them four legions and Caesar himself, with two Praetorian cohorts, and some picked cavalry. Next came as many other legions, and light-armed troops with horse bowmen, and the remaining cohorts of the allies. The men were quite ready and prepared to form in line of battle, according to their marching order. Caesar, as soon as he saw the Cherusian bands, which in their impetuous spirit had rushed to the attack, ordered the finest of his cavalry to charge them in flank, Stertinius, with the other squadrons to make a detour, and fall on their rear promising himself to come up in good time. Meanwhile there was a most encouraging augury. Eight eagles, seen to fly towards the woods and enter them, caught the general's eye. "'Go!' he exclaimed. "'Follow the Roman birds, the true deities of our legions.' At the same moment the infantry charged, and the cavalry, which had been sent on in advance, dashed on the rear and the flanks. And, strange to relate, two columns of the enemy fled in opposite directions. That which had occupied the wood rushing into the open, those who had been drawn up on the plain into the wood. The Cherusi, who were between them, were dislodged from the hills, while Arminius, conspicuous among them by gesture, voice, and a wound he had received, kept up the fight. He had thrown himself on our archers, and was on the point of breaking through them, when the cohorts of the Ratai, Vendelici and Gauls faced his attack. By a strong bodily effort, however, and a furious rush of his horse, he made his way through them having smeared his face with his blood, that he might not be known. Some have said that he was recognized by the Chauci serving among the Roman auxiliaries, who let him go. Ingeomerus owed his escape to similar courage or treachery. The rest were cut down in every direction. Many, in attempting to swim across the Besurgis, were overwhelmed under a storm of missiles, or by the force of the current, lastly by the rush of fugitives and the falling in of the banks. Some, in their ignominious flight, climbed the tops of trees, and as they were hiding themselves in the boughs, archers were brought up, and they were shot for sport. Others were dashed to the ground by the felling of the trees. It was a great victory, and without bloodshed to us. From nine in the morning to nightfall the enemy were slaughtered, and ten miles were covered with arms and dead bodies, while they were found amid the plunder the change which the Germans had brought with them for the Romans, as though the issue were certain. The soldiers on the battlefield hailed Tiberius as Imperator, and raised a mound on which arms were piled in the style of a trophy, with the names of the conquered tribes inscribed beneath them. That sight caused keener grief and rage among the Germans than their wounds, their mourning, and their losses. Those who but now were preparing to quit their settlements and to retreat to the further side of the Elba, longed for battle, and flew to arms. Common people and chiefs, young and old, rushed on the Roman army, and spread disorder. At last they chose a spot closed in by a river and by forest, within which was a narrow, swampy plain. The woods, too, were surrounded by a bottomless morass. Only on one side of it the Angravari had raised a broad earthwork, as a boundary between themselves and the Cherusai. Here their infantry was ranged. Their cavalry they concealed in neighboring woods, so as to be on the legion's rear, as soon as they entered the forest. End of Book Two, Part One this recording by james christopher jx christopher at yahoo.com